Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a really misunderstood topic of poverty. Now, of course, there's physical poverty, and today's guest actually spent three years living in Nicaragua, is incredibly involved um, in poverty, including a sweet corn project right now uh, that they're doing for wealth generation. But I want to focus us as well on a different kind of poverty, and, and that is scarcity thinking. A lot of leaders come into coaching with scarcity thinking and this idea of, I am stuck. And as James talks about in this episode, um, I am destined for less. And I just want to challenge your thinking as you come into this episode, do you feel like you are destined for less? And we're mostly not talking about physical provision here, although that's part of it. But are you destined for less? We talk about the abundant life at Stay Forth, that we are not in the leadership business. We're not here to just give you tips and tricks. We're actually in the freedom business. We're partnering with the living God and the Holy Spirit to bring freedom, to bring the abundant life, and to be reminded that you do have access to the abundant life. And as we read through news cycles, as we hear the latest article out there, as the latest scare comes upon us, which I'm sure it will in some fashion in the next few months, um, we have scarcity thinking. It's always going to be this way, or this is just the way it's going to be. And those are scarcity thinking phrases that I hear a lot. And frankly, I say sometimes, and this has been a big focus in my own life is getting out of scarcity thinking and scarcity mindset. Some of us maybe grew up inside of that. Maybe you even learned that from your spiritual background. But I just want to invite you to see this episode as a potential actually for you to see some healing in your own life and to ask some questions like, do I believe I'm destined for less than? Where are my limited beliefs? Where, where am I stuck in my thinking, in my mindsets, in my views of God or who I am or my identity? that are actually holding me back. And the last thing I want to, you to think about is the intersection of the spiritual and the practical. We get to do a lot of coaching with leaders around time, priorities, schedule, your energy, calling, vocation, skills, gifts, wiring, all these things that deeply matter, and yet we can keep them off to the side, and our spiritual beliefs, which often have a huge grip on us. And they may be improper, they may be incorrect, uh, they may be limited, they may be insecure in the way that we think of them. And it's a beautiful thing when we watch this integration, moving from disintegrated or separated, there's a chasm between the spiritual and the practical, to actually bringing the spiritual and the practical together to intersect. The integration of those two things is so crucial. If you are a coaching client with Stay Forth, you know what I'm talking about. We talk about these things a lot in our coaching sessions and even in our training, even in our upcoming masterclass uh, that, that is launching, you're going to be hearing more about. But I just want to invite you to think about the intersection of the spiritual and the practical to be reminded that you, my friend, are not stuck. You are not destined to be in that place of not enough, not enough time, not enough energy, not enough to do what God the Father has invited you to do. And so we want to kind of merge a coaching conversation today with a conversation about physical poverty, about spiritual poverty, even emotional and relational poverty today to get your wheels turning. Friends, we believe that you can live and lead right side up in this upside down world that is incredibly upside down right now. And yet the upside down kingdom starts to feel more and more 
like a beautiful relief in the midst of the madness that we live in these days. Friends, I hope you are challenged by my conversation with James Belt. He's the author of Hope Realized. He lived in Nicaragua for three years. He is deeply passionate about this. He has lots to share. Hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks, Alan. I'm so excited to be here. Man, talking about poverty today, and I actually think there's a lot in common between how you approach poverty and even how we approach leaders at State Forth. So excited mm-hmm. to dive in, dive into that. Uh, but first of all, give us a little bit of your journey. How did you get passionate enough about poverty to write about it? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks. And thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, basically, my uh, my journey started, uh, you know, with poverty in particular on a trip to Nicaragua. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in a, a family business, actually, uh, went to college, got a degree in finance, went into financial planning, and my uh, my family was part of starting a church. And about three or four years in, the pastor of our church, uh, Reed Robinette, felt like, okay, it's probably time for us to do something missions related. And so... Um, we uh, he had a connection to uh, Nicaragua in Central America, and he called his friend Tim Adams, who was the executive director of an organization called Orphan Network at the time, and said, "Hey, can we start working with you guys?" And so our church took a trip down, and my family, my uh, my parents and my sister went on the trip. I, however, was the guy who wanted to just kind of send the check. You know, I was like, "I don't need to, I don't need to go on this trip, you guys." Uh, have a great time. I'll send checks and I'll I'll do that. And uh, they came back and and were like, "No, you got to go." And they started coaxing me along. So a year later, I ended up going on a trip with my church to Nicaragua to a community called El Cañon, uh, which is an impoverished community just outside of Managua, the capital city, and visited an orphanage named Puente de Amistad, which means Bridge of Friendship. And that was my introduction to Nicaragua and to poverty there. I you know, gone to soup kitchens and done, you know, work in the US, things of that sort, but never, never in this case. And so that was my first introduction to poverty, but never really thought um, necessarily that was leading anywhere at the time. I was kind of like the reluctant missionary, as you can probably tell from that initial, initial part of the story. You know, I thought, okay, I went, I, I did that, but I'm not even sure how my business background and such applies to this particular um, situation. And so a couple years later, my parents actually ended up adopting a girl from Nicaragua, a 15 year old girl, Emmeline, who's my sister. And through that time, I had the opportunity to spend a little more time in Nicaragua. I had started kind of taking trips with the church after that and had the opportunity to spend a little more time there. And that's when I would say I really started to ask questions about why does poverty exist? You know, we see commercials, like I often think of the Catholic Charities commercial, you know, the sad music and the kid, and it's just like kind of this concept or idea. And it's like, ah, poverty sounds, or maybe you're even driving down the road and you see the guy on the side of the street. And it's still almost like looking at a TV screen, you know, you're looking out your window. And so it's this idea of poverty, but it went from an idea to a person. And so, um, you know, whether that's Josue or Maria Jose. And so I started to ask these questions about, well, why, why does poverty exist? despite the fact that they seem just as intelligent and as capable, um, you know, as I am. And so 
that really kind of forced me to start asking some of these questions, um, you know, and eventually led to me moving to Nicaragua, uh, although there's some steps, steps in between there, but that's really where it started. So that that's where the curiosity for me started, you know, with the finance background, I was thinking, well, why can't, you know, why can't they basically um, be in the same spot I am? So tell me about a hinge moment in there, where as the door was sort of opening, it began to swing open and said, I need to do something drastic about this. Yeah. So when I was, I had an opportunity to go down, uh, as I said, when my mom, my mom was actually kind of on and off living in Nicaragua uh, for, I guess it was about nine months. She would spend a few weeks at a time while during this adoption process. And I had the opportunity to travel out to a remote area uh, called uh, Boaco, this region, and to this town called Pueblo de las Montañas, which means town of the mountains. And I visited some coffee farmers while we were out there, and it was an opportunity for me to kind of begin to explore this idea of how can I make a difference. And so I met some coffee farmers, and they were growing uh, coffee, and it could grow, you know, a large amount of coffee enough to support their families and their community and things of that sort, but they could only grow about 50%, or only sell, I should say, about 50% of what they were growing. And so, you know, I was a bit of a brash, uh, you know, mid 20 something guy. And I kind of heard myself say, I can help you. And I, I accidentally promised them that I would help them uh, find a bulk buyer for their coffee, that I would connect them with Starbucks, because of course that would be easy. And that I would sell, you know, the rest of the 50%. Of course, I came back to the United States and found out that international coffee trade is, is slightly more complicated. Than, yep. than I thought. I write in my book about how you apparently have to send a coffee bean to Switzerland and they test it. And so there's this whole whole process and I'd accidentally made this promise. And that made me kind of take a step back and say, maybe I don't completely understand everything. And uh, a couple of years later, I was on another trip and this was, this was the real hinge moment was uh, I was on this hike with some kids. So I had developed relationships with the youth at this orphanage and we wanted a hike in El Canyon. And El Canyon, not unsurprisingly, probably means the canyon. And so there's uh, hills, you know, to the side of the canyon. And we walked up this hill and you can kind of look over the whole canyon. And it's, it's kind of pretty, you know, it's a very impoverished neighborhood. But, you know, you wouldn't know from the, the tropical setting necessarily. And we're looking over and I just felt this inaudible voice that said, where are you going? And um, my first thought was, I'm going home to my nice, comfortable life. <laughs> where, <laughs> sure. You know, I bought a house and I had all these kind of plans. And uh, I'd come to kind of realize this was, you know, God basically asking me, like, James, you know, maybe you should spend some time here. And that's when I really felt this call to say, I, I'm going to move to Nicaragua for three years and invest my life in bringing, um, you know, economic and community development and, uh, and trying to create hope. Mm. Uh, before we talk about hope in that foundational piece, what are some misnomers that we have about poverty that we really need to deal with? Yeah, uh, where where can I start? <laughs> there are a lot. Um, probably the easiest one, though, that I would say is that, um, you know, there's a really good book called When Helping Hurts that talks about how oftentimes we address poverty by by real short term solutions. So maybe there is a need for development and we address it with uh, relief or or something of that, you know, providing food, providing uh, clothes where the real need is to help people 
move beyond it. And that kind of goes back to what, what I found. So as I started to spend more time there, and, and when I first lived there, I kind of went after having this coffee farm experience with, I'm not going to just jump in and decide I know what to do. I'm going to spend a few months just trying to understand learning Spanish. That was hard for me, to be honest with you. I'm not wired that way. I'm more of a, hey, go go after it kind of person. And so as I started to do that, I realized that what I often think of as poverty, uh, hunger, unemployment, lack of education, healthcare issues, they're really byproducts of a much deeper issue. And if you think of it almost like an iceberg, you know, we iceberg about 10% above the surface, right? The 90% below is what supports and feeds it. And so um, what I found is there's this 90%, and I call it um, the life hopelessness, this idea that um, a lack of opportunity, so both a lack of practical uh, hope, uh, the inability to you know, really do anything about your situation practically, and a unclear identity that you believe you were just created for a life of less than, that nothing can ever change. And that because of that, and that reinforcement of the lack of real opportunity, you kind of fall into this pattern of not believing anything can be different. Um, and so when I think about what do we need to change, some of it's figuring out that it's not just these things we think of. Certainly that's a part of poverty and that those are things that need to be addressed and sometimes addressed immediately. But if we really want to create change in poverty, we need to deal with uh, what feeds it and what perpetuates it. And that's why I think, you know, I, I have a chapter book called Is Poverty Winning? And it kind of seems sometimes like it's not changing enough, you know, at least at the pace it should. So, yeah. We talk a lot at Stay Forth about the intersection of the spiritual and the practical is that there are spiritual realities at work, of course. And I think many times we've overemphasized those. And then there are practical things at work that we really do need to take some next steps and we need to deal with. And um, both of those matter. It's not that the practical isn't spiritual, um, but that false dichotomy uh, is really helpful to deal with and to actually mm -hmm. bring those, merge those together. Um, there are things we can do. Uh, and we need to to use our brains and a lot of, you know, intelligence that we have to ask questions and get around those things. That's what I get to do as a coach. And again, there are, you know, lies, spiritual realities in there, you know, even warfare uh, against, you know, certain things in, in impoverished communities. I've been around the world. I've seen a lot of where that comes together. So that was one of the things that grabbed us about your book uh, was mm -hmm. that intersection of the practical and the spiritual. Talk about that, how practical development and spiritual development come together? Yeah, so, you know, it's one way, and actually kind of goes even back to your your last question a little bit is, you know, we often think, at least I have in my life thought, well, why don't people just pull themselves up by their bootstraps? You know, that old saying of, you know, just do something about it. And where I think they come together is we've seen, I've seen personally in, in my work in Nicaragua with NicoWorks, the organization I work with, um, and then you've seen all over the world that, you can bring all the resources you want to a situation, but if somebody doesn't believe that their situation can change, it becomes extremely difficult for them to move beyond it. If they see themselves as destined for a life of less than, um, then taking advantage of that resource that you bring, that real opportunity that you bring becomes incredibly different, difficult. And so changing that identity piece and saying, I like to say it, um, helping people understand that they were created on purpose and for a purpose by a God who loves them really changes their perspective on what is possible. And so when you bring that spiritual element, the reframed identity and saying, no, look, you, you know, your situation might be, your circumstance right now might be saying to you that nothing can change. 
and even your your the history and everything that's happened in this community might be teaching you that, but that's not the, the truest reality for you. You know that you were created with God-given potential, and uh, that you can move on. And then that you bring that to the to the practical, the real opportunity, um, and you provide and say, "Hey, and I'm I believe that enough to say I'll invest in you. I'll I'll come behind you and provide you with a real opportunity to move to move beyond this." And so when you bring those two together. You create this opportunity for what I call all in hope to exist and and allows people to thrive, uh, to move beyond their circumstances. It doesn't mean that, hey, if we're uh, sometimes this, you can get confused and think I'm saying basically that like, hey, if you have spiritual hope, everything's going to be OK. Like you're going to you become successful. And that's not it. It's that you will have the perspective and ability to see beyond your own reality that allows you to push through and take advantage of these opportunities. And it, it won't be easy necessarily, but it'll put you in the position to to move beyond your your present hopelessness. Like I said, I believe hopelessness is a lie. What do you mean by hope? Can you define that for us? Yeah. So, you know, we often think of hope as something maybe wishy-washy. Uh, I'm in Baltimore and my favorite football team is the Ravens. And so, you know, I might say, hey, I hope the Ravens win. And it's kind of like this, you know, real wishy-washy, like maybe it'll happen. But when I think of, of hope, I'm talking about something foundational, something that um, that we can actually uh, put our trust in and, and believe in. And uh, I say it's hope that's a noun. You know, it's not based on something that's that's like, hey, I'm hoping this happens. It's saying I have hope. And, uh, you know, again, it goes back to this idea of, of spiritual, of a God who loves you on purpose and created you on purpose and for a purpose. And the ability to have a real opportunity. That's the kind of hope I'm talking about, not just a, um, a wishy-washy idea. And that's why I think sometimes we get, confused when we talk about hope and people are like is there really any power in hope well yeah sure the wishy-washy kind that um that doesn't make a difference and we're just kind of hoping something happens no but when it's based in something real uh that's a completely different story so many different directions we can go here but i'd like to camp on one on one idea we've talked about when helping hurts books like toxic charity as well um there's a lot of skepticism right now we live in a very skeptical culture yeah um so what do we need to unlearn about ourselves as skeptics before we can actually begin to be part of this hope-filled process? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, so I often tell people a great place to start is to get curious. And some of getting curious is looking at your own uh, perceptions and maybe misconceptions. So asking yourself, what do you really believe about people in poverty? Um, because oftentimes, I think we believe people in poverty as are as hopeless as and maybe even more so as they believe they are. And I think that tends to lead to some of our short term solutions, because we think, well, I'll just give them some food to eat because I mean, they have no opportunity to really move beyond their current reality. So I'll just help them kind of survive. And so moving beyond our perspective and seeing and, and actually coming to terms of do I believe people that are in poverty have hope? Um, you could probably ask that about yourself, right? Do I really believe that I have hope? Because I can, there's a whole kind of application for our own lives. But when we talk about poverty, do I believe they have they have hope? Um, I think it starts there. And do I really understand poverty? You know, I see poverty and, and I see it again, going back to this idea that maybe there's something below the surface, this hopelessness that feeds it, um, kind of changing the way we understand it and see it. Um, and, then, uh, and then being willing to say, you know, one, it's going to take a, a while. Um, it's a messy process, and I'm going to be willing to actually invest my life in it. 
Um, and it doesn't mean moving to Nicaragua like I did. Uh, it might mean that you have something to bring to the table that can make a difference for somebody in your community. Um, it doesn't have to be super complicated, but saying I'm willing to jump in and believe that there's hope for these people that, that are living in poverty, that they're really uh, just as capable as I am and as intelligent as I am. They just haven't been given a real opportunity and maybe their identity, their picture of themselves is, is uh, messed up by, by this hopelessness. And so um, changing the way we see people, I think, is, is the best place to start. Because I think oftentimes we just believe um, nothing can never change. And what we, uh, how we perceive something is often the way we'll, we'll treat it. So, mm. Yeah, where do you see hopelessness uh, right now in our culture? And, and even where do you see poverty right now in our culture beyond just physical poverty and homelessness? Yeah, uh, I would say that I think one kind of post pandemic. So, you know, we're in 2022 and, you know, we're kind of in this weird stage where it's like things are kind of still around, but we're, we're kind of moving beyond it all. And um, I think a lot of people are just feeling tired and burnt out and, and in some degrees kind of hopeless, like can things really um, be different? And I think that a lot of us, and I don't want to get into politics too much, but, you know, I think that plays into kind of where we are in, in the division of our country. It's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> we kind of have this perspective of, um, of it's, you know, I don't know if there's really hope and it's got to be this way or, or the highway. And I think there's a lot of hopelessness that lives in all of us to say like, Hey, you know, can, can things really be different? Um, which I think kind of creates, um, a scarcity mindset. And we kind of have think, well, we have to grab onto whatever we have. And so I think there's a lot of that, um, a lot of that. And then I think there's a lot of people that, you know, you can be hopeless and have a lot. You know, I, I say in the book that um, the difference between me and someone in poverty is that when I am hopeless, my margin for error is extremely uh, wide or large. You know, I can I can feel hopeless, make some bad decisions because of it. And more than likely nothing's going to happen because I have resources that keep me from happening. But if somebody that's in poverty that has little resources, they live on this razor thin edge where they make one bad choice and that can put them behind the eight ball for a long time. And so um, I think sometimes we don't re realize the hopelessness we we have inside ourselves because um, it doesn't necessarily have a, a immediate implication. That's good. Well, James, thanks for what you do and uh, your book, Hope Realized. I do want to mention Folks, as you go and, and buy this book, 50% of the proceeds um, go straight to work in Nicaragua. Is that is that right? Yep. Yeah. 50% of the proceeds go to Nika Works to bring both practical and spiritual hope to people in Nicaragua. Mm, beautiful. And as you were talking about Nicaraguan coffee, you got me really thirsty <laughs> for one of, one of my favorite coffees. Uh, I spent some time in Managua and we actually sponsor um, a girl there. Oh, uh, wow. Jesse and uh, yeah, just kind of bringing back some of those memories of, mm. of our time there. Just beautiful, beautiful people there. Um, bringing back, you know, again, so many, maybe even some of the same neighborhoods outside of the city uh, of beautiful people um, who mm. find themselves in in really hard situations, full of joy, um, way more joy than you'd find in a lot of our elementary schools, and and just in yeah. a a really fascinating um, look from an American perspective mm. at these things. So uh, I'm sure you learned a ton in those, in those three years. Just want to end with this question. Um, how do you think you're different by making that decision to move over to Nicaragua for three years? Yeah, I think one, it opened my eyes to uh, a bigger 
you know, reality in our world and maybe a bigger picture of God and, and understanding from that perspective. But despite living in a country where poverty has its grip, I think I'm more hopeful because of it, to be honest with you, because I've seen change. I've seen people that uh, live in, you know, what I couldn't imagine, you know, plastic wrap houses and things of that sort. And as you said, joy and then the ability to see and and, and then belief in themselves and their God-given potential that they can move beyond it. So I think it gives me hope for all of us that, um, you know, as I said, hope can be realized. That's the name, name of my book is Hope Realized in part because I believe it can be realized. And I think there's a lot more to do. So I think I'm more hopeful today than I was before I, I moved there and I'm excited for, for what is possible. Awesome. Love it. James, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Alan. Great to meet you. Shot, shot, we focus so long.